Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace. In case you don't know, my name is Caleb, and I am the church administrator and ministry intern here. And I'm very excited to have the privilege to speak to you this morning. If you haven't joined us the last two weeks, Paul started a series on the life of Solomon in 1 Kings. And today we'll be looking at chapter 3. One of the big turning points of my life so far came for me when I entered high school in grade nine. High school is a weird time of transition for just about everyone. But for me, one of the biggest challenges was coming into high school in the shadow of my sister, who was three years older. You see, I grew up in a small town and in a high school of 400 or so, there isn't really that much room to hide. Everyone knows everyone. And especially teachers will often know who you are, largely based on your siblings and their reputations. And my sister was top of her class. Number one academically, all four years, won many awards, and was the co-president of the music program. I realized very quickly that it was not going to be easy to make a name for myself and to step out of her shadow. One time, a teacher actually said to me, man, you're definitely not like your sister after receiving a poor grade. While maybe intended as a joke, that remark cut deep, shattered me on the inside, and it stuck with me. Until that point, I had thought I was a good student. I was fairly ambitious, and I expected to excel. I had been the teacher's pet, I had won the awards. But I came to realize that if those were the things I was going to put stock in, I couldn't measure up. The shadow was too large. High school ended up including lots of positive experiences for me, but it took a lot of time to figure out what my place would be and where I could stand on my own. I couldn't just put pride in my academic accomplishments because I knew I'd always feel like a disappointment, at least to myself. Maybe in your life, it wasn't a sibling's reputation, but the success of a parent whose business you were charged with taking over, or a career path you chose to follow in. Or maybe just the expectations of taking over a job from your predecessor who had done the job really well. Maybe you felt this after the loss of a parent or mentor when realizing it was now you who was the leader or the elder for those younger. One time or another, we have all felt like we didn't really have what it takes to live up to who came before us. The shoes were simply too big. In 1 Kings 3, we find Solomon in this place, fresh-faced, unprepared, and in charge of a nation. Oh, and the son after a man, of a man after God's own heart. What was he to do? Let's read 1 Kings 1, uh, sorry, 1 Kings 3, verses 1 to 15. If you don't have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to pause right now and grab that. All right, let's read. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon 
to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to discern this? To, for who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life, or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. This is the word of God. It's easy to read this passage and immediately write it off as something we've heard before and believe there really isn't much application to it for us. I mean, how often does God come around appearing to us in dreams, ready to, to fill our deepest wishes? But I'd really encourage you not to do that, to stick with me. While this is a familiar passage to most of us, in here we see a great deal about who Solomon was what he got right and what he got wrong. Remembering the context of where we are at in his life, which Paul has spoken on the last two weeks, it's easy to feel some type of empathy for Solomon and where he is at. Some of you may have felt the pressures of taking over a job or a business from a parent, but I'm quite sure none of you watching here today have had to take over a kingdom. We hear in the opening verses of this chapter as he is talking to God, that Solomon sees the job before him and knows the challenges which are in his way. We know, first of all, that Solomon was still very young and inexperienced. His reign was very new, and he was still pretty untested. Different sources and scholars claim different things as to how young he was when he became king, but likely at the time of this chapter, he was in his early 20s. So while not biologically a child, we see that before God, he feels like he is but a little child. As someone in my 20s myself, I can relate to this feeling. Although I look like an adult and can think and function like an adult, 
there are just some days when I feel like, compared to those older than me, I'm still but a child. Solomon was aware that his youthful inexperience was a challenge for him. The even bigger challenge, though, was the footsteps he was walking in. We are well aware by now of how Solomon had become king after his father, King David, and we can imagine how this would feel for Solomon to take over. Having to live up to this high reputation. And in verse 6, we hear this right from the source. Solomon exclaims when talking to God that David had walked before him in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward God. He wasn't just taking over. He was taking over with that as the standard to live up to. For himself, for the nation, and especially before God. On top of that, he knew what the job description was and how important his role was. He rightfully described the people he was ruling over in verse 8 as chosen, too many to be numbered, and a great people. So he was young, he was unqualified, with big shoes to fill, and a big job to step into. So when the question came from God as to what it was that he wanted from him, he had an important decision to make. What did he need? with the realization that the shoes were just too big for him to fill. Solomon was blessed with what all of us long for sometimes when we feel lost and incapable. A no-strings-attached offer to receive from God whatever it is that we wanted most. This story has always brought to mind for me this common hypothetical question that I remember talking about with my friends a lot as a kid. What would you ask for if you were granted three witches, sorry, three wishes from a magical genie? Maybe this became a topic of conversation because of many movies with genies in lamps uh, granting wishes, but it was always a funny hypothetical. As a kid, answers would often be about things we wanted or thought were cool. If adults were asked this question, I'm sure there would be desires for world peace to solve global hunger or the solution to any number of social justice issues. That, that is, as long as this took up only one wish and unlimited wealth, freedom from debt, or a multi-million dollar home were all still on the table, of course. But when you play this little game sooner or later, you'll realize that someone probably a little too smart for their own good came up with what was the right answer. If you have three wishes, what you have to wish for is a million more wishes, of course. And while this technically may work in a fictional movie or a fairy tale, I don't think this is what you would go with if the god of the universe asked you what you wanted from him to give you. After all, God is a lot more incredible and all-powerful than a genie in a lamp. But even if God got into the business of granting wishes, and even if a million more wishes was still on the table, I wonder how far down the list asking for understanding mind and discernment between good and evil would be for many of us. For Solomon, the realization of how big the shoes were to fill brought him to a place of true humility. This showed him what he was lacking and stripped him of any pride that he was good enough to make it on his own. He had witnessed his father, who certainly made his share of mistakes, but we see that God was with him 
and gave him the wisdom that allowed the land to prosper under his rule. Solomon's humility allowed him to see that it wasn't riches or power that had carried the day for David, but his faithfulness in allowing God to work through him. And in this, we see that Solomon was aware that it was God alone who could bless his kingship. He was the king of God's chosen people. And while this was a big position, it came with the reality that the people and the authority over them belonged to God. God's help was what he needed in order to rise to the challenge because it was his people he was ruling over after all. An important theme all throughout the Old Testament is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon pictures this as he placed himself in a position of humility and submission before God and chose to seek the common good rather than simply his own comfort. He didn't view God as the genie and get focused on the physical provisions he could ask for, but realized the much deeper things which God could bless him with. And this pleased God very much. Solomon would later write in Proverbs 8.11 that wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. And while we may all be able to say that, how often do our decisions line up with that? In this moment, Solomon rightly regarded those earthly goods as inferior to the supreme gift of spiritual wisdom. He asked well, and in this we see that God gave to him generously. Not only did he receive a wise and discerning mind, but God also chose to give, gift him with great riches and honor. It almost seems like he got the proverbial million more wishes without even asking for them. This seems like the ultimate example of what Jesus would later teach his disciples. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Solomon received the very gifts he had decided to bypass in his quest for wisdom. Solomon's humility allowed him to experience the richness of the Lord's blessing and pleasure. After we hear of the Lord's blessing Solomon with wisdom and riches, we fittingly go right into a story which shows the application of the wisdom he now exhibits. He had asked specifically for the ability to discern between right and wrong, and the situation, seemingly quite immediately, gets presented to him to do just that. The second half of this chapter, from verse 16 to the end, features the famous story of how Solomon settled a difficult dispute. Two women came before him, the newly wise king, with an unexpected conundrum. They both, they both claim to be the mother of one baby. The first woman sets up the relationship between the two. They both live in the same house and they both gave birth three days apart. Then tragedy struck this home. When the two women and that and their babies were the only ones in the house, the second woman's son died in the middle of the night because the woman smothered him. Then, According to the first woman, the other woman's solution to her mistake was to go and swap the two babies, taking the living son and putting the dead son with the other woman. The woman speaking discovers this in the morning, but quickly realizes from close inspection that the child at her side is not her own. Then we hear the only words from the second woman in this whole story. 
who interjects that she disagrees with the story being told to the king, and that it is indeed her child who is alive. Both women claim the living child as their own and have come before the king to make their case heard. Solomon's proposition is swift and shocking. He asks for a sword for the baby to be cut in half and each woman to receive half. The first woman, who we are told definitively is the actual mother, pleads for the king not to do this, but the other woman, but for the other woman to have him so that the child can live. The other woman though thinks this is a good solution and wants that for neither woman to have a living baby. King Solomon uses these responses to wisely decipher that the first woman is the true mother and the child belongs with her. This story is quite the wild tale and Solomon's wisdom put to the test is one of the most famous moments in his life. What is so enduring about this story is how it gets to the point where it could almost make your stomach turn. And the conclusion could be that Solomon is a reckless maniac, drunk with power. But instead, it goes to a place of peaceful resolution, leaving us satisfied and impressed. This story, on a small scale, is the type of narrative that Hollywood would eat right up. There is conflict, there is suspense, you feel sad, you feel disgusted. But then, it comes to a happy ending. Ultimately, though, the key we... The key thing we witness is that true wisdom often involves having the audacity to make a bold proposition, even to the point where sometimes this audacity requires doing what seems counterintuitive with the confidence that it will lead to the correct conclusion. All Solomon does after hearing the story is to simply confirm the facts of the case, both parties present, and then call for the sword. On the face of it, this seems reckless, violent, horrible. But wisdom from God, as Solomon exhibits, involves thinking two or three steps ahead. He knew that the response to his call would reveal the truth and therefore lead to the right conclusion. The notion of actually cutting a baby in half is one that rightfully will bring some disgust to anyone hearing the story. But when it's put in the context of being from a wise, righteous king who is following God, we see the method to the king's apparent madness. Solomon's intention was never to kill another child, but rather he was staging a trial that would reveal each woman's heart. And this had its desired effect. The first woman responded with the passion and compassion of a mother's heart, not looking out for her own interest, but caring the most about the child. The second woman responded callously and out of bitterness from her own grief. She could only look at the other mother in hateful jealousy, even if it meant that neither of them would have a child. With both hearts on full display, Solomon knew everything he needed to know to be able to bring a simple solution to a complex dilemma. The wisdom Solomon exhibited in this case began with an audacious call and ends with a just ruling. Solomon had the human understanding to be able to soundly and conclusively know that the baby belonged to the first mother based on their reactions to his proposition. Similarly to how this story seems to resound beyond the pages of 1 Kings in our culture's biblical consciousness, 
The tales of this king's wisdom resounded beyond the halls of the palace and earned him great respect. The two main parts of this chapter show us a one-two punch of what we are to do when, like Solomon, the shoes feel too big to fill. We need to have the humility to know what we are lacking and who to turn to, and then the courage, the audacity, to put the wisdom from God into practice in the most challenging of circumstances. But if we stop there, we rob ourselves from the true depth of this passage. When we pull back the curtain and look a little deeper, this passage contains many warning signs of dangerous sins that were lurking beneath the surface in Solomon's life and in the nation of Israel. The chapter starts off with telling us of a very unwise personal decision which Solomon had made. He entered into a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, taking his daughter as his wife. On the surface, they may, this may just look like background or even a shrewd political move. But we knew, we know that Egypt had historically been Israel's enemies and oppressors. And in Deuteronomy, intermarriage with Egyptians was expressly forbidden. Right at the beginning of Solomon's reign, we see that marriages to foreign women will be a pervading crutch in his life. Not a very wise start. Then we also see the matter of worship, which is another area of failure at the beginning of Solomon's reign. Verse 1 tells us that Solomon was in the process of rebuilding or building his own house, whereas verse 2 shows us that no place had yet been built for worshiping the Lord. Solomon's priorities as kings don't appear to be in the right place, and the influence of his foreign wife certainly wasn't helping that. Verse 2 seems to lead us to conclude that the worship at high places shouldn't be blamed on the people, but does fall roundly on the shoulders of the king. But this does raise the question, why were the high places so, so wrong to worship at? Well, later on in 1 Kings 11, we see that the influence of foreign wives ultimately dulled the edge of any concern Solomon had about worshiping in high places and ultimately leads him into worshiping other gods. We have to view this all in light of Deuteronomy 12, which explicitly associates purity of worship around the one sanctuary and the removal of any foreign influences which would tempt Israel in different directions. So while not seemingly any great offense, it should certainly be viewed as something that was displeasing to God for the potential of it leading to greater sins and idolatry. Then, if we fast forward to the story of the two mothers, we see a detail here which often gets overlooked. The two women which came before the king were not sisters who lived together or something of that nature, but they were prostitutes. Two known prostitutes who waltzed right in before the king with their problems. Considering prostitution was against the law and was often punished by stoning, the fact that the two prostitutes would bring their affairs before the king certainly indicates some more widespread sins which had befallen the nation. When Solomon awakes from his dream, a wiser and richer man, we get a brief indication of God opening his eyes to some of the ways in which he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. While we don't hear anything about his marriage alliance or the prostitution, we see that he doesn't return to worshiping in the high places. While we don't have a great sense as to the exact significance of standing before the ark, it is very noticeable that he doesn't return to the inappropriate places he had worshipped before. His perspective 
has shifted. So the natural question now is, what does this all mean for us? Is the conclusion simply that if God asks what we want, we should choose wisdom? Or that we should model our life after that of Solomon? While wisdom is the trait that we know Solomon for, and he is considered a great example of, I think we must remember what the title of this series is after all, Cracks in the Foundation. And in this chapter, while we witness the God-given gift of wisdom and the application of this gift, we do see the cracks in the foundation of Solomon's life. It is a really dangerous thing to ascribe the credit for the wise actions of this chapter to Solomon himself, as we risk losing sight of where this wisdom came from. It was only through God's grace that Solomon became the wise king we remember him as being. Because before that, wisdom is not something we would have ascribed to him. He was making dubious alliances and not properly prioritizing worship in his life. Thankfully, his awareness of all the ways that he had failed to meet the mark of his own father gave him the humility to come before God in submission and ask for him to receive the understanding he lacked. So if we are to learn anything from Solomon, it's not really about wisdom. This wasn't from him. What we see from Solomon is what to do when you are inadequate. And for us, like it was for him, the only move is to turn in humility to the one who is more than adequate to equip us in all that we need. In Luke eleven thirty one, 31, we see the proclamation that something greater than Solomon has come. And what is greater than the man who has given wisdom from God? God himself, who came to earth as Jesus to show us true wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1 ends with the idea that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, so that no human being can boast in God. Verse 30 says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. True wisdom can only come from a relationship with God, who, through Jesus, came to offer us forgiveness, hope, and eternal life with him. All you need is the submission to confess your sins, believe in him, and trust in him to lead your life. And the wisdom will follow as we submit to his good plan. Because true wisdom doesn't come from knowing to ask for a million more wishes from the genie. It comes from having a relationship with someone a million times more powerful than a genie. Because of Jesus Christ, we can have a relationship with the same God who made Solomon the wise king. And when we know him personally, we don't have to wait for him to show up in a dream, to turn to him and ask him for what we need. When we realize that the shoes are just too big to fill, no matter the scenario, we can always turn to him in humility and ask him for whatever it is that we need. When we need wisdom, we know that it is not the wisdom of Solomon we need to strive for, as that is human and sinful and leads to destruction. It is the wisdom from God who will equip us with all that we need more perfectly than we could ever imagine. Let's pray to close our time together now. Dear God, I thank you for your word and how we can look to it today to learn what you want us to hear. 
and what you have for us. I thank you that you are a wise God and that you are who we can look to when we need wisdom, when we need anything. That like Solomon, we can come before you in humility and you will hear our requests. I pray that we wouldn't take from this that we need to be like Solomon, but that we need to trust in you. That we need to look to you in humility. I pray that anyone listening to this or watching this would, who doesn't know you would hear these words and hear your message and hear your call in their life and that they would, they, they would come to know you as their Lord and Savior. And I pray for all of us that we would um, take, take this passage and take your word and your truth and apply it to our lives, that we would remember that you are our great God and that you are with us and that we don't need any kind of genie, we just need you. I thank you for your love for us and your protection in our lives. Pray this in your precious name. Amen. If you are joining us for the first time today, please let us know by commenting below. I hope that today's message showed you the true source of wisdom. When we feel like we just can't measure up, remember it is God who will give us what we need when we come to him in humility. Don't let any human wisdom be your standard, but remember to look to him Look to God, the one who gave Solomon his wisdom. If there's someone in your life who would be encouraged by this message, please share it with them. For more messages, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and have a great week.